0: It's go time. It's the Magnificat. I hope you brought your seatbelts. So Magnificat is the reading you just heard this morning. This is, uh, the name is taken from the Latin rendering of the song. This language of my soul is magnified or glorifies. And this is an electric passage. If you're not very familiar with the Magnificat, uh, with Mary's song, then I get the privilege of introducing you to it at a deeper level this morning. This is dangerous text though, and so, uh, even this morning, I want to start just with this reading from Adrian Rich. Uh, it's a poem called Natural Resources, and it's been with me all week. Uh, so, let this be a uh, way in for you with Mary's song, the scripture reading, and, uh, We'll continue together. My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. In the front of your orders of service is this picture this week this is uh my rendering of mary the mother of christ in like at least a little bit more punk version than the one that we're used to punk is in like good kind of revolution music not punk is in an annoying small child uh (laughs) although although if you imagine Mary as a young teenage woman, she's likely she was, then you read this passage of scripture as though she were saying it, and then think about placing Mary in certain contexts, like in a city hall meeting or something, and she stands up and she proclaims this uh, radical poem, then she's probably going to come off as a bit of a punk too. So that's okay. Uh, so this Mary is going to be our guide. She is fierce, more fierce than I'm used to, and uh, challenges me directly, and likely you as well. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. The first chapter of Luke's gospel has like 175 verses, it feels like. It's got 80 verses. So you're dead center in the thing, starting at verse 39. Now this is going to be a different Mary. This is going to be a different kind of Advent than maybe ones we've sat with before, there is something really sweet about our Advent season. I mean, like right, the Stoikos and your beautiful daughters are here, and like that's very lovely. And sometimes, I mean, we lit the the pink candle of joy today, uh, and sometimes our own celebration of this season can unintentionally make us miss some of the, like, really complex and even troubling parts of this story. And this morning is going to be a recovery of some of that muscular advent, as Mary tells it. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, was imprisoned during uh, World War II for conspiring against the powers that be, he was a preacher and a teacher before that, He has a great set of letters and papers from prison that if you haven't read, you should read at some point. This is from an Advent sermon that he preached before his imprisonment. He's talking about Mary and about this song. He says, the song of Mary, the Magnificat, is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. I love that song, but Mary doesn't sound like that song. This song has none of that. It's instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. That is how Bonhoeffer describes the Magnificat. So are you ready? To dive into this thing together, so I'll take a deep breath, maybe like clench and unclench your fists. Uh, my daughter has this great habit before she starts her math uh, homework where she like shakes her hands and then rubs them together to get some heat going. Corey taught her this trick because she's about to get to good work. So even that, like whatever it would mean to sort of wake our brains and our minds and our hearts up this morning to what Mary might teach us. Okay? Then Shurn... To chapter 1. Mary journeys to visit Elizabeth. She just found out that she's going to have a baby. And she's found out that Elizabeth's going to have a baby. And they get together and they hang out. Mary's not super pregnant at this point. But when she shows up at Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth's baby leaps. Because Elizabeth is like five or six months pregnant at this point. And there's something happening both in their encounter and in the encounter between the life that they carry within them. Jesus and John the Baptist who are going to be uh, sort of dancing around each other in this story of salvation moving forward. But right now, they are held close by these women. And in the midst of this encounter, these two women withdrawn from these bigger stories playing out on the world stage, and in this intimate home setting, Mary utters this song. If you've got a Bible, you can open it or just where you are listen i want to read it one more time for you we can't hear this enough in this season mary said my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant surely from now on all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, and he has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the powerful from their thrones, and he has lifted up the lowly, and he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. It's not just a song not just a little bit of poetry what mary is doing here is she is ushering the entirety of her tradition of her big story what she's doing is she's taking this legacy of strong women and their strong songs and she's placing them inside of her throat and then singing it back out into the world She's gathered up all of these pieces, all of these parts, and she's ushered them with power into the world as it is, to try to create the world as it might be. And so you hear echoes. If you know your New Testament, or your Old Testament well, you'll hear echoes of other women's songs, sung at very similar times in the social and cultural world that they inhabit. You've got, maybe first, the song of Miriam. Do you remember Miriam? Miriam sings at the sea crossing in the book of Exodus. Miriam is Moses' sister. And after Exodus 14, when all of Egypt gets drowned in the Sea of Reeds or in the Red Sea, then Moses and, and Miriam, they sing a song on the other side. This is in Exodus chapter 15. Miriam's song, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, horse and rider. He has thrown Into the sea. She has witnessed. Literally witnessed. The proud and the strong. Being brought down low. Not even just to like surface level. They are brought down underneath the ground. To the bottom of the sea. Like it doesn't get more dramatic than that. And then these slaves. Who had been in captivity for generations. Are pulled up. 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 Promised for the promised land but at least up to the mountain, to the edge of the mountain, where they will meet their liberator. And so at the start of this journey, after their deliverance, Miriam sings a song that is triumphant, that is muscular, horse and rider, God has thrown down. Mary knows this song, and Mary finds a way to sing Miriam's voice with her. Maybe the next woman we would go to is Deborah. Do you all know Deborah the prophet? Deborah the prophet is amazing. It's in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is the story that happens between time. Israel has moved into the promised land, but it's still inhabited by hostile nations. And so they're in the middle of trying to negotiate how to survive inside a world that doesn't want them there. And they don't have a king. They don't have a ruler at the time. Judges says over and over again that there was no king in Israel. And so everyone did whatever they wanted. And in this world, there rose up fringe figures who became uh, sort of guides for the time, early prophets. And turns out that women occupy these roles a lot of the time. Deborah becomes a judge. And she helps lead folks into battle. And she sings a song. She sings a song after a military triumph. <clears throat> this is in Judges chapter 5. Listen to these words. Most blessed of women be Yael. Do you know the story of Yael? Does anyone know the story of Yael or Ja'el? Hands up. Gretchen, you got it. we in the back here. That's it? Okay, friends. In some time, we're going to preach through Judges. And Yael is going to blow your mind. Jeanette, you know the story? Enough of it. It involves a military commander named Sisera, who gets drugged by a, a young woman named Yael, and when he's drugged by whatever kind of milk potion she feeds him, she waits for him to fall asleep, and she takes a tent peg, this will work, and a hammer. Kids, close your eyes. No. And she, she hammers it through and pins him to the ground. And that's how the battle is won. That's Yaël. You saw that movie? <laughs> it was on HBO. Uh, so here's Deborah praising the high and mighty being brought low, and the humble or humiliated being lifted up. Most blessed of women be Yaël, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent dwelling woman. Most blessed. She asked for wa- He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a lordly bowl. She put her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera a blow. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. He sank. He fell. He lay still at her feet. As her, at her feet, he sank and he fell. And there he sank and there he fell dead. And this is, this is a very repetitive poem as though we didn't get the point. She kills the guy. But again, you hear the language being brought down and being lifted up. It's this is language of reversal it's mary's song again one more and this is the this is sort of the main inspiration for mary's song it's in first samuel chapter 2 first samuel chapter 2 in this section again israel is trying to figure out what it means to trust god as their ruler as their king or if they can. They're trying to build a nation and build a life together in a world that is often hostile to them. And always the nations are pushing in from the outside, and always they feel under threat or under siege. Hannah would like to have a child, and she can't have a child. But it says in the first chapter, the Lord remembered her. And somehow the Lord remembering her, seeing her, recognizing her situation, it changes it. And so she's going to bear a child. That child's going to be Samuel the prophet who will anoint the kings of Israel. And she sings a song. And she says, My heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no one holy like the Lord. No one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble girdle on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. And those who are hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven. Gee, who has many children, is forlorn. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. There it is. He lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honors. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness For not by might does one prevail. For not by might does one prevail. For not by might does one prevail. This has always been Israel's story, even though they forget it over and over again. The women keep singing the deeper truth into their lives as the people of God. For not by might do we prevail. The Lord, his adversary, shall be Shattered, the Most High will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Israel has always had a tentative and complicated relationship with power, with how to affect change in the world. And they crave to affect change in the ways that all of the nations around them affect change, which is usually through aggression and oppression. Later in this same book, First Samuel, they're going to ask for a king. And Samuel feels like this is a deep rejection of him as their prophet. And God says, it's actually a rejection of me as their king. But give them their king and watch what their king does to them. Their king, Saul, David, Solomon, and the rest, Will act like the other kings of the world will take from them and will oppress them, and in some instances will enslave them again, very likely these kings you asked for will become Pharaoh for you again, and you might be in israel, but it 's going to feel like Egypt. This is exactly what happens. The Bible is written, and, and this is important; it is written. At its core, as a view from the bottom. That's where Mary sings. That's her social location. Now, for a long time in church history, the Bible has been guarded by those on the top. It's been mediated by folks who have a lot of power. You have a lot of agency in the world, but it is, at its core, a revolutionary document. You can feel it in these songs, and you can feel it in the way that the Bible has been used or abused throughout time. I'm going to show you this week just a different couple of places where you can find this. In weeks past, we've talked about empire, about Herod's location in this story, and why putting herod and caesar on one side of the story and equation and putting jesus mary joseph and nazareth and the nobodies from nowhere on the other side is setting up this kind of competition and conflict for who is in charge of reality there are different ways that luke is going to tell us this story of cosmic conflict writ small in jesus and jesus's family and writ large in the powers that be in rome but a, a chapter later, just a couple of chapters later in Luke's gospel, let me ask, what is it that brings, we'll just do like quiz time, what is it that brings Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to have the baby? The census, yeah. We have census, right? We do those things, Well, like every 10 years is around, yeah, that's about how often. And I don't know what your thoughts on census is, and I don't really have like a dog in this fight. But people get really worked up about how we operate the census, and it feels very politically charged. This is not like a new phenomenon. The government's power to count you has always been part of them exercising power. And so there was a census that was going to be taken. Caesar said everybody's got to go to the place of their birth, to their hometown, to be counted. And so Mary and Joseph, they make the long journey while she is super pregnant down to Bethlehem. Because they're from the family of David, and that's their home. That's where their people are from. Be like if we had a census taken, I would go to Osaka, Mississippi. Me and 17 other people. And they would all be related to me. Right? That's the census. Now, why would Caesar take a census? What what is he doing in a census? That is a question that we should ask ourselves. The census was taken for two primary reasons in the ancient world. This is not totally different from now. It was so that Caesar could count how many people could be conscripted into military service, how many young boys are getting ready to hold a sword. Because, well, one of the ways that power holds on to that power is by strength and by might. And then the other reason that they would take a census is they could figure out how much money that they could collect from all of the provinces that they were now ruling. Rome's agenda is expansion and you need a couple of things to expand you need a military force and then you need resources to fund those endeavors and so that is the purpose of a census can you feel if you were an oppressed group what it would feel like to be counted for these purposes what it would feel like to be the people of God the Israelites and find out that you might be conscripted to serve in Caesar's army or that you're going to have to pay a certain amount of taxes for whatever's happening in Rome. It's a problem. Peasant revolts happened all of the time in the ancient Near East because of this kind of power dynamic. Now imagine Mary singing this song again in this world. How charged it is. And I've been thinking this week a lot about how do you preach on something that is 100% for sure politically problematic? And for all of us here not to start freaking out that I'm going to tell you how to vote. Right? Because that's always the fear in these things when you hear that P word, that that's going to be the next thing that we talk about. That's not where this is going. But when we talk about power, the Bible has something to say about it. And it isn't just nation states that hold power. In fact, in our world today, that's not even the most powerful groups that have so much say over our lives. So I'm going to beat up on Facebook some more, right? Because that, those are like the powerful groups. These are the folks who have the most money, have the most influence over a lot of our lives. But there was a story that came out this Wednesday. Uh, the New York Times wrote about it. Uh, there's an investigation over the pond, across the pond into Facebook and so they released a lot of the emails from that investigation and made them public. Internal emails in Facebook's group. And it turns out that Facebook is not all about connecting the world to one another in case you thought that was what they were doing. That's not what they're doing. Facebook emails show its real mission. Making money and crushing competition. Can you, can you see The way that power is wielded by folks who have enough resources to wield it. it, It's the same thing, y'all. Making money and crushing competition. In, In case we thought this just had to do with partisan politics when we talk about power, it has to do with being on top or on bottom. And often when we come to church, we think about sin and the way that sin works itself out in our lives, and the way that God delivers us from the captivity to sin. And sin is one of these big words that almost is so big it starts to lose meaning. But you can feel it in your body when you're in these kinds of situations. If you were an Israelite in Rome at the time, you would feel squeezed from both sides by what was happening all around you. And when you yearned for deliverance or when the angel Gabriel showed up on your doorstep and said that there's a savior that's on the way, that Messiah is almost here and that Messiah is going to inherit the throne of David and that that kingdom will have no end. That means everything to you because this is your reality is being pushed in on both sides, overly taxed. Overly exploited. Unable to worship God as you feel called to do. Like between a rock and a hard place sort of situation. He's scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. And he's brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. When we think about sin, often we think about it in the personal dimension, my, my own sort of responsibility to act a certain way in the world or not act a certain way in the world. And a lot of times when we show up in church or show up around a Bible story and we read together, we think about sin as what it has to do with me and with god this sort of one-to-one individual understanding of sin and that is one dimension of what it means to live in a world that is broken and that breaks us i could give you my list of things that i have done or left undone this week that we would call sin and you could give me yours let's play that game for a minute i'll go first no i'm just joking we're not gonna do that but that is one way to understand sin but it is not the only way In fact, in the Bible, it might even be the secondary way to understand sin. The other understanding of sin is systemic. It is sin that embeds itself in social processes, in systems, in power structures. It is like an illness. I was talking with some folks today about how illnesses work their way through a family. Sin becomes like an illness that can infect, not just me individually, but us as a group or us as a community, or us as a nation, sin has this big spiritual quality to it as well. So when Mary talks about deliverance from captivity, a lot of what she's expressing is deliverance from the systemic sin that holds us under its heel. And that may be a new way for us to understand what God is doing in the world, but the Magnificat makes it, Very, very clear. You know who gets it first. Always the person that gets it first. The people that get it first are those who are most threatened by this story of deliverance. Because listen, if sin is just about my own junk. And deliverance is just about my soul getting freed for heaven. Then it doesn't have much to do with you. It doesn't have much to do with the way that power is wielded in the world. But if deliverance means that we might be free. To join ourselves to God. If we might be able to say something as revolutionary as The Lord has brought down the lofty from their thrones. And has lifted up the poor. Has filled those who are hungry. And sent away those who have taken everything empty. Right? That reversal. Then the folks who have the most to lose are going to start to freak out about it. What does Herod do in the Advent story? He goes on a killing spree for the babies. He knows what it costs, this language of kingdom building, especially competitive kingdom building. Pharaoh knew what it would cost him if they were freed. He would not have a workforce he didn't have to pay anymore as a problem. John the Baptist, in chapter 3 in Luke's gospel, goes out into the wilderness and calls everybody to him in the faraway places and says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the crowds, they say, what should we do? But then the narrator tells us that two specific groups ask the question again. Teacher, what should we do? If the kingdom of God is at hand, what should our lives begin to look like? And you know who the two groups are? They come to them, tax collectors and Soldiers. Folks conscripted into that systemic sin are asking if they might be able to step out of it into God's kingdom. They get it. They feel it. It looks like this too. When Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem, Bethlehem is a small, small town at the time with not a ton of people in it. And they end up in a manger, right, in like a side room to a hotel or an inn. And they have their baby there. And there's a star over them, and it's this beautiful thing, but it's also this very small and intimate thing. But right next door to Bethlehem is a place called Herodium. Herodium is where Herod builds his sort of summer palace. And his summer palace is built on top of a man-made mountain. And so our Christmas story talks about this star illuminating this new savior, this new king, but often the distance within eyesight of the manger would have been Herod's temple. And this place was burning bright. It was the city on a hill. And so what you have is these competing claims for who gets to be king of the Jews, but it's not like they're really competing, right? It's like a baby from a tossed away family in a manger. And then it's Herod in his temple palace. Like there's no actual competition here. It'd be like if I tried to arm wrestle Dave Ekstran. Like we all know how that would end for me. Have you seen him lift things? One time I saw him put this piano just like right on his back. No. But that's why he sits in the front so if anything goes down he's ready. <laughs> The Gospel writers are setting up a a conflict. You can feel it in the way that they tell the story. You can feel these sources of energy sort of radiating out. And you know that at some point they're going to collide. Right? And they do. We know where this story is going. At some point, the text says that Jesus sets his eyes on Jerusalem. And that's where the confrontation is going to happen. The writers are telling us what kind of story we are within and what it costs to tell the story in this way. Advent is sweet. Christmas is sweet. And it is nostalgic and it is all kinds of lovely, beautiful things, but it is powerful and it's dangerous. There have been multiple times throughout history when the singing of Mary's song has been banned in public because it can cause such revolution. Multiple times it was pulled out of public worship and made illegal. Our sweet Mary singing her sweet song. Right now in D.C. at the Museum for the Bible, there's an exhibit called the Slave Bible. Thank you uh, to the folks who alerted me to this exhibit this week. So I was doing some reading about it. and I kind of had a sense of this because we've done a decent amount of work on the way that religion coexisted with uh, slavery in the South especially. Especially because it was often propped up by, uh, Christianity and by the churches. So how do you tell a story of Jesus when Jesus' mother speaks with this kind of, of language to people who you intend to continue to oppress? How do you adopt as Pharaoh the gospel and weaponize it to your own ends? That's like, that's how Christianity often worked itself out and does all of the time. So there's this Bible. There's like three copies in the world right now, and one of them is in D.C. right now on exhibit. Uh, and it says here, it's uh, select parts of the Holy Bible for the use of the Negro slaves in the East Indies at the time. And so there were these different places where uh, folks were being held in slavery, and these missionaries from uh, Britain wanted to come over and convert. That's what you, you do. You go, you convert. And so slaveholders said, you can come over here, but you're going to need to bring a certain kind of Bible. Could you please get this thing edited down? So in, in our Bible, there's like a thousand plus chapters in the whole thing. The slave Bible, the only one that they were allowed to give out to folks, has just a little over 200 chapters in it. This is a heavily redacted document. Exodus? How could you read Exodus? And come away safe. You can't. So only like one chapter of Exodus is in this Bible. None of Revelation shows up. A ton of Paul gets tossed out. Anything that speaks about freedom and liberation and deliverance is gone. And anything that talks about being obedient to power structures and obedient to your masters is left in and is highlighted. Because the folks in charge know what it means to read the Bible as it is. And the decision to pull out, like 80% of it, should say something to us about who the Bible is for and what it might do in the world if truly believed, if truly read and followed. Funny enough, Mary's song is left in. Because who should be afraid of women and what stories they might tell us? The editors did a terrible job. They leave in all kind of things that hint at what God has been up to in the world. Because they are looking at it with a view from the top. And who needs to be afraid of a young pregnant woman in a tossed away town? Our story The one that we have inherited and the one that has been entrusted to us. What Paul says is the ministry of reconciliation. That we have all been given so that we might share it. Is full of power such that the world might actually be remade. The world. Not just me and not just you. But the whole thing becomes a new creation, a new kingdom, a new heaven, and a new earth. And I know at times the way that we tell it can make it seem less safer. But when those with the most to lose kill folks over the way it's told, or bar parts of the story from being told at all, We know and can see what power it is that we hold. And if at times we don't tremble, I'm not sure we're reading the story as it's actually been given. If coming in here on Sunday teaches us anything, it's this: to be careful with what scriptures we read together. I actually know where all the safe parts are. I studied them. And week after week, we could just talk about those. I could spend my entire vocation as a pastor just preaching the safe parts, and we wouldn't get through all of them. And I wouldn't have to tell the story at all. I could take this thing, and I could pull out sections, whatever 200 chapters there are, and change it all. But if I'm going to let this thing read me. And now I'm going to have to pay attention, especially to Mary. We met this week in our uh, sermon study group on Thursday. Michael man, said this about Mary, which I loved, that uh, Mary goes from talking to Gabriel and, and it seems so demure. She's just like, you know, that that sounds good. Let it be according to your word. It's a very passive figure, Mary. And then it's just a few verses later that she's singing a song of sedition and treason. What has happened in that intermediate space of just a few verses, just a few weeks, that has given her such gumption? What does it actually mean to carry God inside of us? And what would it do to our speech patterns in our life if the true God inhabited our lives Mary shows us so at that point in the discussion Lindsay you spoke up and talked about so Lindsay is now carrying the future within you right and her and Gavin are getting ready to have a child in late spring and at some point you read this somewhere or did you just know it that your own sort of identity and DNA and the babies is getting all wrapped up in each other. Is that the way that you told it? It's in your blood. The baby's DNA is in Lindsay's blood. Okay. So, this made me think immediately. What happens if the Messiah is inside of you and Jesus' DNA ends up in your blood? Like, what What kind of story would we start to tell if that was the truth about what was going on inside of us? I don't know. It just took Mary a few weeks to find her voice, to find the muscular voice to say that God is remaking everything. Before, I just thought it was about carrying this baby for the Lord. And and somehow this is going to be the Savior. But the Savior? Well, that's going to undo everything and then remake it. And maybe I don't have to be afraid anymore. Maybe we don't have to be afraid anymore. We talk this way in church a lot. About inviting Jesus into our heart. And Maybe your experience was like all eyes closed, all heads bowed. If anyone feels themselves so called to walk with Jesus in the way that he has called us to live. Raise your hand. See those hands. Would you please walk down to the front? I've got a prayer for you to say, welcome to this new family. And there is something beautiful in that call. I remember responding to that call. But I don't remember anyone telling me what I was actually signing up for. And it took me years and decades to fully take the story inside of me. And I'm still working on it the bravery required to follow Jesus in the way that he is moving in the world. So when when Mary takes the story inside of her, and it gets all twisted and tangled, changes her, remakes her so that she can describe a world remade. This Advent season this is your invitation. If you carry within you the Spirit of God by invitation or invasion, you carry within you the power that might topple what holds us and might free those who are bound. You carry within you revolution that will upset a lot of people. But what the angel says, and what we know is true, is that nothing is impossible. When the sacred, when the divine, when God, true God, strong God, remembers us and steps beside us or is invited within us, and then we begin to live through. So welcome to the punk gospel. Would you bow your heads? God, for those who most need to hear this story of deliverance, of true deliverance, would you give them guides? For those around the world who are in mass migration, who don't have a home anymore, wandering into places where they may not be welcome, would you be their comforter? For those trapped in families of abuse, In prisons of their minds and of real bars, would you liberate? And for us in this space, held captive by bad theology and shallow religion, would you convert us to the deep truth of your gospel? Remake us so that we could be a people sturdy and not afraid. You have conquered. Enemies within and without. You even have conquered the tomb, the grave, death with a capital D. And though we still shudder, we are trying our best to follow you. So lead us to the kingdom of heaven. Help us to speak the language of heaven here on earth. It's audacious, and we hardly believe it. But this is good news. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, with the voice of Mary, and the voices in the wilderness. Amen. Amen.